You are listening to From Our Perspective, Voices of the Directly Impacted, here on Justice Radio, coming to you from WMPG, WERU. I'm your host, Marian Anderson. Today, we're talking with a source of inspiration and hope, Ms. Cherie Cruz out of Rhode Island, a representative down there, also formerly incarcerated, very dear friend of mine. So happy to have her here today. Welcome, Cherie. Hi, Marion. It's so great to be here with you today. Oh, thank you for making time for this interview. I've been dying to get you on this show. You know, as I mentioned in the intro, you're just, you're such an inspiration. Let's start with a little bit about your upcoming, sort of the the circumstances around, you know, coming up in, in Rhode Island and what that looked like for you. Yeah. Um. So from for myself, you know, I was, you know, born in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, just like my, um, my parents who were from Pawtucket and uh, you know, grew up with five brothers and a sister and, you know, in, in some really severe poverty. And I think one of those reasons is both both my parents were formerly incarcerated. My mother gave birth to one of my brothers in Framingham Prison, women's prison in Massachusetts for checks. And my father was in and out all his life from juvenile, from the juvenile detention centers, we called it, um, you know, the training school here, all the way up, you know, growing up as kids. So, you know, growing up in Pawtucket, in that community, uh, I don't think we met anybody who wasn't impacted by the criminal legal system and incarceration, and for that matter, police violence. And I think that, you know, those two things for me growing up had really huge impacts, traumatic impacts on my life. I think, you know, in our community, the police, you know, were the violent ones in the community. They were the gang members. I think, you know, some of the things that stay with me as an adult is just those vivid memories of watching the police come in and beating my parents. I remember one incident, they came to the door, my mother wouldn't open the door, they kicked it in, pulled her out, she was still in a nightgown. There were all these men in steel-toed boots and, and clubs just beating her repeatedly over the head. Um, until my father came out and tried to like pull him off and watching my brother, you know, this chaotic scene, watching my, my brother and at the time we're all kids, you know, trying to get them off of my mother and, you know, throwing kids and watching my father try to fight it. I mean, after the aftermath, we looked at our mother, my brother, we, we still talk about to this day that that trauma, like we witnessed of the police is, you know, my mother had these bowling pins all over her head. That's how bad the beating was. And it was all because she wouldn't open the door. You know, they said they had, they got a noise complaint and they, you know, she didn't open the door. So I think that that's a nice encapsulation of our upbringing. There was a lot of violence, a lot of, you know, really perpetrated by police. And we knew when they came, you know, one of our parents were going to prison. And here we were on this cycle again of whether it was my Nana taking care of us or um, an older sibling while, you know, our parents were incarcerated. So with that said, you know, yeah, with that said, it was like with me and my siblings, you know, all my other siblings, they were all formally incarcerated. Um, I think I was probably, you know, other than my younger siblings, because I had two younger siblings, which later on, they would also be impacted. It was almost like a rite of passage in that community that it was your turn now too, right? So your your parents are formerly incarcerated, obviously witnessed a, a ton of, of police violence and brutality in your home and in your community. I'm, I'm wondering how how those experiences shaped 
you know, your your encounter with the criminal legal system and and what what shook down around around that for you? What brought you to prison? For me, one thing it did do is witnessing those things and experiencing that. And then the parents I had, because, you know, they were really community driven. We had nothing, but we knew that everyone in our community, like if if that person's being impacted, we're going to be impacted. So we have to like all work together. You know, people in poverty, we have to work together and and really fight against a lot of these injustices. So I think really by being, you know, witnessing that, you know, and seeing my parents go through all of these, um, you know, incarceration and corruption is is really being justice oriented, trying to learn, you know, your rights and really trying to fight against that system. For, for me, you know, there was a lot of, um, in addition to that, you know, as you could, you know, really suspect there's a lot of us who've been impacted by the criminal legal system is is those traumas is you know substance use disorders and other mental health challenges my mother was really depressed um my mother was using substances you know my father as well so you see these things these cycles um and for myself as a young person living in this poverty i was fortunate I think as I'm watching everyone else use substance and become addicted to substance that I really didn't want to be, you know, some people in our family, you know, how you grow up in the same household and you can go different ways. I really looked at it like we have addictive personalities. We have trauma and I need to stay away from this. So I think around 15, I kind of ran away from home. Well, I did run away from home um, and I was sleeping on couches. I was in cars. I was at friend's house um, when I was pushed out of school. I ended up getting uh, pregnant and then I was a teen parent. And it was from that, you know, I really did love school, but it was hard to really focus on school when you don't have food, you don't have lights, you've got all this trauma going on in your home and in your community with violence. So school kind of stabilized me and I started going back to school, doing volunteering when I had my son. Although, you know, at that time I got my first apartment and I had a lot of my family members and siblings who were going through homelessness. So of course, as a family member, they're gonna come live with me. They're gonna be with me. I'm gonna help support while still trying to maintain, go to school and, and do what I can to elevate out of this generational, you know, poverty, generational criminal legal system. Well, unfortunately, after that happened, I had family members living in. There was a lot of tension to my house. And at the time, there was a lot of big, the height of war on drugs. So there started being a lot of calls and a lot of these DEA task force in local cities and towns put together by the attorney general's office. And we had one there in Pawtucket and my house was raided. Now at the time, I myself was not, you know, selling drugs, didn't, wasn't, you know, using drugs. I was pregnant with my daughter actually at the, at the time, just a year after that. So it was my second child. So when my house was raided, it was myself, my mother was in my home, my brother, my daughter's father. So there was, you know, some family members and my son was outside playing. And so when my house was raided, I'm like, what, are, you know, what are they doing here? What, are, you know, why are they coming to my house? I ended up getting arrested. I remember my mom in the back of the police car telling me, just shut your mouth. Don't say a word. You know, just don't say a word. Only thing you ever say whenever the police get you is you ask for a lawyer. So that's what I did. Me and my mother was brought, you know, to jail. We were there for several days before I was brought 
before a judge and at which time I was held without bail. I'd never been arrested before. I still didn't know what I was doing there. Um, when I was brought before the judge um, and held without bail, it was then discovered. They said they found, you know, so many bags of drugs, of uh, crack cocaine or cocaine, powder cocaine. I still don't know what it was to this day. And I was held. <laughs> so it was, you know, I was pregnant with my daughter. And I remember the, the horror stories of my mother talking about being in Framingham prison and giving birth uh, to my brother in prison, how she was shackled from ankle and wrist while she gave birth and how, you know, they took her, you know, our brother, um, her son away from her. She was fortunate that she had my Nana at the time who, who took my brother while my mother was incarcerated, but she just, you know, she told those horror stories and how they treat you like an animal. And she thought, you know, you can't have your baby you know, in jail. And she knew I wasn't doing anything. It came to find out later, it was uh, one of my family members who hit some drugs outside of my apartment, but the police had falsified documents, said it was inside my home. Um, so my father was able to um, get me back in, beg an attorney to just get my bail reduced. They brought me back in and I got a 50,000 surety and at which time one of my, my brothers sold his car we were able to get a bails bond bondsman to take less. And then I was able to get out, which I think at that, you know, now I'm out, but I'm, I'm facing these charges, these charges I'm hopefully not even guilty of, but I'm facing these charges. So you learned right away. You are guilty before innocent, especially when you're impacted, especially when you don't have money, especially when you don't have an attorney, you don't have any representation. And remember, I'm growing up thinking, you know, I'm, I'm getting out of this life. I'm, I'm going to break this generational cycle. And here I am in it, in it. How did I get here? How did I get here? I was doing all the right things, right? I was, you know, moving up, going to school. I was, I was staying away from substance. I thought this is all I had to do, but no, it, you know, that's, that's not how it is. That's not the reality when you live in communities that have, you know, these types of police brutalities. I'm like listening to you, you know, tell this story. And this is, I've heard your story a couple of times now. And every time I hear it, I'm just like, I'm just taken aback by, by how the system just like tears families apart. Like it it eats people up, you know, it like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're poor, you know, if your parents have, have been incarcerated, if your family has, you know, sort of made a name for itself when it comes to the cops, they're going to harass you, right? They're going to, they're going to do whatever they got to do to make sure that they're relevant in your life, including falsifying documents, right? Like the, the drugs were outside of your house. They were not even yours. You weren't even aware that they were there. Right. But they falsify these documents. It was it's like they're just coming to get you. It doesn't it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how well you're doing. It doesn't matter that you're trying to come out of this generational this generational cycle of trauma. Right. You're trying to do better for yourself and for your babies. You know, those that came before you really it, they laid your path. Right. Um, and I'm sure it was it was probably, you know, your grandparents were probably poor. Right. Your parents probably came up <laughs> living the same same kind of life that you did. Right. Like it's just this. Uh, this disgusting cycle of of harm perpetuated by this machine that just like eats people up and and spits them out. You said it because it's like when you said about the police, you got a name for yourself. Me and my little sister, we would uh, walk in the neighborhood, and a cop car would come up and be like, "That's a cruise. That's a cruise," and we would run because we knew, and we were young. I was a teenage, like you know, I was like fourteen. She was like ten. We were running 
because we heard them yell out, that's a cruise. So they knew, you know, and, and we were marked. That's it. We were marked. So, you know, and it's, it is, it's disgusting because it was marked in a way that they come after you generationally. Right. And, and I mean, and when you talked about the falsified documents, it went so far that they even falsified a confidential informant to say they had, you know, purchased drugs for me, which that's when I really knew so much that they falsified it. It was a person who was undocumented. They were using them. So they were also using them. And um, it came out years later because, you know, I went through the system. The attorney was like, just take it. You don't have any record. You know, here I am now. I'm the last, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the family. I got a felony now. Right. He was like, just take it or they're going to give you five years. I'm like, it's not mine. Fingerprint it. But what they had did had done to seal kind of the deal versus with the falsified document saying it was in my house was now they falsified to say there was this informant and it would come out later, um, several years later, because they were doing it to so many people that some people, you know, I guess they had money, they had good attorneys that they started to ask for the discovery for the name of this informant. And it came to find out that it was this fake informant that they just put on every single record that they were using to get people to plea, right, to convict them. And it came out later, you know, they sent them out of the country. They got, and they had to, a lot of people got their cases dropped or thrown out. Unfortunately, I was not one of them. And I remember going back to my attorney at the time when I saw it in the paper, these, the, this corrupt strike force, these police um, were brought up on trial. They obviously got off, but it was, this was the reality. I remember seeing in the paper, I still have the clipping and I went to the attorney at the time and he was like, oh no, 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 you can't do anything. Done. What's done is done. You'll just, you just have to wait out your, you know, your sent your probation, you know, and you, maybe one day you can get it expunged, you know, and that was it. But the reality was after that it happened to me, I lost my apartment right away. So I was struggling with homelessness. This is my first apartment. I just lost that. So there went that. Now I'm back to couch surfing. I'm back to, you know, in the cars. I'm at a homeless shelter. I'm I'm struggling again, but now with a felony conviction. So I'm not going to be able to go to work because every time I applied that I couldn't get a job. Like hiding, you're living in shadows and trying to stay under the radar just to survive. Yeah, yeah, think about how many people this is applicable to, right? I think about when I was doing time, you know, up here in Maine, there were, I don't know, like 80 something women at the at the women's center. There were another hundred women at the at the reentry center. There were another, you know, 40 something women at, in the pods, you know, um locked up in their cells, you know, and probably 75% of those women had children. Right. And we don't really think about how any sentence is a life sentence. Right. I think that's lost in a lot of people who haven't served time. But but you're right. It follows you around. You know, when you're trying to get out, and you're trying to find a job and you got to check that box or, you know, you're trying to go to school. You know, you can't take out loans because you have drug convictions or, you know, any anything you're trying to do to to better your life and, and your situation for, for yourself, for your children. You know, it just, it haunts you. It's always there. I thought, how can I turn this into learning about these people, right? Cops, systems, you know, that are causing so much harm and why? Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that right after this break. This is From Our Perspective. 
Voices of the Directly Impacted here on Justice Radio with your host, Marian Anderson. Today, we're talking to a dear friend of mine, a comrade in the movement, Representative Cherie Cruz from Rhode Island. Let's talk about your recent campaign. Let's let's talk about where you're at today. Both my parents didn't graduate high school. They didn't go to school. And I think about you know, what they used to say to me about education is that great equalizer that's going to be able to get your way out of poverty and really instilled that, you know, love for education and justice in an unjust system. So I, I really took that, that, you know, message my parents had given me and continued on. I ended up getting my GD and, and then going back to school to community college and then graduating with honors all the way raising, you know, four kids uh, as a single parent on public assistance, and then ended up uh, transferring uh, to an Ivy League, you know, school, Brown University, the same place where my father worked as a custodian for 10 years. And when they found out he had felony convictions, past felony convictions, they fired him on the spot. So to get into that institution, it was quite a milestone, one, to be a first-generation college student, but ended up, you know, taking all that, you know, anger and and just, like, what was going on in my community and all this violence with police and the systems and learn about why is it like it is and really spent a lot of my time at Brown focusing on education, public policy, and their intersection with um, crime. I even did my honors thesis on the role of police in the schools. And this is, the, this is the things we're talking about. So I ended up using kind of my experience and turning it into this, you know, academic learning. Let, let's start to look at it and how do we change policies? How do we start to look at school discipline policies and just the way these things work? Who are these people that are creating these policies and why? What's the intent behind it? So I think that helped me personally to, to stop being so angry but try to get to solutions and really just deal with the trauma too. Like, why is this happening? Because it's not really me. It's decisions made by these people in power, right? That are creating these cycles, um, bad policy, bad laws. And I think with that, you know, fast forward to today, um, going up and advocating at the state house, trying to educate lawmakers, legislators about how these policies, these laws are really doing the opposite of creating healthy communities, but really harming communities. It's it's keeping um, people oppressed. It's, it's not allowing people to get out of generational curses. So you know, when, when that was, you know, kind of my mindset was like, I never thought about being a legislator. I never thought about running for office, but it wasn't until I guess, you know, it was that tipping point and the current uh, legislator in my community wasn't representing us, um, really was continuing the cycle, right? Where people weren't getting out. And I was fortunate to have some really great groups around me and friends who were like, you should run. And I'm like, no. And they're like, no, you should run. And I'm like, they're going to bring up my story. They were like, that's all right, because we're going to bring it out first. <laughs> and, and talk about owning your story and owning your life and and using it as a tool of strength and knowledge. And we were able to do that. And 
you know, I won, I won the election. And here I am as uh, now representing the community, the same community. I watched my mother, you know, and, and parents beaten by police where I was, you know, falsely accused and convicted, uh, where, you know, all of these traumas happened. And now I get to really, really make, make a change, right? I really get to have some impactful change where I can help to write laws that can hopefully turn this around so others can, you know, get out of these, you know, generational, and I don't even want like traumas and, and have hope and opportunities. Um, in my community, we are a large community of directly impacted people. Um, we're the second community in the state with the largest numbers of people on probation and parole. So, you know, in the most diverse, so it, it really is, and, and really high poverty. So there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to be done, but I'm really hopeful we can try to make a change. Sheree, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to just hear your story and to know where you come from, right? And to like see where you're at and what you're doing. And it really does. It instills so much hope in me. Every time I talk to you, I'm just like, can we just have like a bunch of Sheree Cruises in every state across the nation, writing good policy for the people, showing up, representing the people in the communities, right? Because when I think about this system, you know, we talk about bad laws or bad policies. And I and I say to myself, it's not bad law about bad policy, right? It's intentional. It is. You know, <laughs> folks in positions of power want to keep us poor folks pressed. They want to keep folks marginalized specifically black and brown folks right mm -hmm. uh because it's a it's it's white supremacy right it's it's it goes back for tons of generations but you know it's intentional this this design you know these systems they're working as as they were designed to work it's an intentional design to to keep people uh marginalized and oppressed and and to keep people in positions of power in those positions and so it's like your story is like the the best underdog story ever. And I'm just, I'm so proud of you. Uh, and I just appreciate you so much, like taking all of your experiences and, and really digging through them to find strength and and to to focus on solutions and to to get out there and and you know be a champion of of change in your community. I see follow you on on all the socials right and i see you i see you out there and i see the people in your community and how much they they support you and they love you and and i can't think of a better person you know to represent your community than you and and i just hope that the folks listening understand how important it is to listen to folks with lived experience right because if you didn't go through everything that you had been through you wouldn't be where you're at today Right. You wouldn't be right. sort of championing these these changes in your community, right. writing yeah, policy that is. Yeah, I was going to say people need to see that. Right. That yeah. what you're going through now can be a source of strength. You know, it, it, it could be something because you can't this isn't theoretical. I don't come in there with theory. I come in there with lived experience with life and who mm -hmm. knows it better. And that's when, when, you know, you go up to that state house, you look around and there's no lived experience in what we're talking about. There's nothing. 
in poverty, in impact by the, you know, incarcer incarceration, the criminal legal system, uh, mental health. And there's none of that up there, right? You don't see any of that that represented in the people who are supposed to be, you know, quote, representing you. And it's 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 insane to me that, you know, when I look around, there's no one. I'm like, who had to, you know, go, you know, days without food and hope to get back to school just to get that lunch, you know, right. or, or who had to live in a shelter or, you know, who's been, you know, arrested and incarcerated or, you know, who had a felony, all these little, who's been, a you know, victim of violence, you know, like my little brother was murdered, right? Anybody else here? You know, like you just don't see any of these these things that actually impact most of our lives of people living, you know, in the communities, in communities that are struggling with poverty and struggling with these violences of police violence and corruption. And it's like, what, you know, you, you said it, these are intentional and yeah. we need more people like us, Marion, like who every day are, you know, can go up there and one educate, but also be able to help you know, create laws that start to undo all of this harm because there's yeah. so much harm. There is so much harm. Sheree, I would like to just, before we sort of wrap it up here today, I'd like to hear what are your top three priorities? Oh my goodness. Yes. Well, um, you know, one of the things is clean slate, really giving people second chances if they have these convictions for whatever reason, that there's a mechanism where they don't have to live their whole life with this, right? And we know there's other states within the country who are doing this well. I know Mass, Connecticut, others who have, you know, look back laws of three years for misdemeanors, seven years felonies. So really starting to look at ways we can mitigate this harm so we can live voting rights and increasing that. I mean, we've got like evictions. So here in our state, a lot of people evicted, a lot of slumlord stuff going on. I just put in a bill for right to counsel at evictions. Um, you know, so, you know, we're just going to keep going and like balance. We're trying to balance the scales of justice, right? Because there's no justice in this system. Oh, it's so true. Now, listen, I have one more question for you. Where does Rhode Island stand on, on drug decrim? I know here in Maine, that's something like 75% of, of the people currently in prison are are in on drug-related charges. So drug decrim is a big deal, right? Like we're trying to end the war on drugs here in Maine. And I'm, I'm wondering where Rhode Island stands on that. Oh, yeah. Huge. We've been doing a lot of great work. I think we have a lot of good uh, community organizations, too, who've been really fighting for it. Last year, we legalized cannabis automatically expunged people's records who had up to two ounces, whether it was a felony or misdemeanor. So we're really trying to, we're really making our way, reducing, you know, from felony to misdemeanor for other certain chart um, of substances. And we just put in a bill or my friend, Rep Potter um, on, you know, psychos um, psychedelic mushrooms and legalizing those. So we're we're going to continue to keep pushing um, on this track to not only decrim, but legalize. We passed the harm reduction centers and there's they're about to get up and running. We'll have a pilot here in Rhode Island, which is really exciting because we know the war on drugs was a war really on people. Thank you so much for, for coming on today and, and for talking about, you know, your personal story. 
I just appreciate you and your time so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And we have to definitely follow up. All right. Well, I look forward to that, Sheree. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, next week, you can join Linda Small and Mackenzie Kelly on Creating Windows, Not Bars for part one of their discussion about prison education programs with uh, Colleen Coffey and uh, Rebecca Barr. It's gonna be a good show. I'd like to give a special shout out to Samuel James, who gives us the gift of music uh, each episode that opens and closes our show.